Let's begin our sermon with a short prayer. Lord God, you are merciful and tender-hearted, abounding in love and faithfulness. Turn to us in our anguish over sin and hear our cry for mercy that we may be at peace. And help us to see through the words of today's sermon your hand at work in trials, whether we fail or pass, through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. It always bothered me. We know that God does not take pleasure in human sacrifice whatsoever other than the sacrifice of his son, true God and true man, who would die in our place and remove our sin. So why would God test Abraham and tell him, tell him to kill his son? God had promised Abraham that Isaac would be the one through whom all nations would be blessed. God had promised Abraham that the Savior would come through Isaac. And then one day he tells Abraham to go kill his son, sacrifice him to him. When God tests us, if you will, it's not for God's benefit. God knows all things. He knows the outcome of every possible action, every possible consequence. In fact, faith is God's Holy Spirit in our hearts, so God knows when we have faith. This was actually for Abraham's benefit. I'll get to that in just a second. Abraham has to deal with the fact that God's word seems to contradict itself. God has promised him that through Isaac, all nations would be blessed. That means the Savior is going to come through Isaac. And yet he tells him, go and kill Isaac. Abraham trusts in the Lord in his providence. You know, he doesn't tell his wife, he says, God's been talking, I've got to go kill our kid. He doesn't tell her, he goes off with his servants. But he leaves them at the base of the mountain, but he tells them, we will be back. He understood. God had made a promise to him and he was going to keep him, which meant Isaac had to rise again. So Abraham steps forward and before he stabs the knife into Isaac's heart, God says, stop. This was for Abraham's benefit, brothers and sisters in Christ. See, this test was actually to show Abraham something. The next event that is listed in Abraham's life in the scriptures is that Sarah dies. This event was meant to concrete home into Abraham's heart the resurrection. His beloved wife who has stood with him through everything is going to go to heaven. And the only land Abraham's going to own ever since he, he left, followed God's orders and left her is going to be that he buys a burial plot for her and, and for himself then in the future. But he knows he'll be with his dear sister in Christ in heaven and he knows they'll rise again. God has concreted this down for him. What happens though when you and I, when God allows trials and temptations to come into our lives and we fail? We find comfort. We find comfort in our gospel lesson where Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit out in the desert and God let the devil have at him. Jesus is true man. He felt the pains of temptation. He was hungry. God was sustaining him in a miraculous way. You don't go 40 days without food and yet he would feel those pains. But he's true God. He could not fall. God will not sin. When he felt the pains of temptation according to his humanity, uh, his Godhood would keep that from ever being sinful. And because he's true God, you and I have been credited with that. You and I would have fallen under such temptation, but when God looks at you, God the Father looks at you, he sees Jesus Christ standing up to the devil, standing up with his word. 
And yet, still, God allows, He rules over all creation, He allows trials to come upon us. They're for our good, just as they were for Abraham's good. But sometimes when they come, our sinful nature, the world or the devil, they whisper this lie in our ear. They whisper this lie that goes, God hates you. God is mad at you. God is punishing you. God has abandoned you. And so today in our sermon, we discuss the theme, never view trials as proof that God has abandoned you. And in Romans chapter 8, God says those wonderful words, in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to this purpose. Then the apostle Paul lays out that before God said, let there be light, he planned your salvation. He made sure you would hear the word, that Jesus withstood the temptations for you, that Jesus' death removes your sin, Jesus' resurrection is yours. God predestined you. And then he says today's verses. Our text for our sermon is Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, which tell us, What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. This is the word of our Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I will be preaching on my translation of the inspired Greek in this text uh, because I want to bring out a few key concepts. The apostle begins our text by saying, therefore, what should we say in regard to these things? Worrying that God is not using things for our good, the fact that God predestined us. When we have this fear that when trials come upon us, that God's abandoned us. Or if you're like me, more than once in my life, I've been afraid. What happens if some trial comes in my life and I forsake my faith and abandon God? It's the joy of predestination. God had planned to keep you in the faith. So the apostles, what should we say in regard to these things? If God is for us, then who is against us? Boy, the apostle just said a mouthful there. You see, the devil plans things for our harm. He comes and whispers his lies. And his, and his right-hand man, your and my sinful nature, loves to help him along. But God will not let those things come upon you unless he can use them for your good. I often stand back and wonder, how much today did God tell the devil, Nope, that will do my little lamb no good. And when a trial does come upon us, God only allows as much of it as he can use for our good. So if he's taking what is meant to harm and destroy our faith and he's spinning it and using it for our good, then who can be against us? There's no point in opposing us, although the devil tries his fool head off. There's no point because God's going to make it serve your good. He's for you. 
Still, the apostle points out the next thing for us to tell that sinful nature, be quiet. He says, indeed, he did not prevent suffering from happening to his own son. We put a spotlight on this on our Ash Wednesday sermon. The cup that our Savior had to drink from meant being abandoned by God. Besides that, all that physical pain of being flogged and nailed to a cross. God didn't spare any of that for his son because he loved you that much. He put his son through that so he would not have to put you through being abandoned by him in an eternity in hell. So the apostle says instead he handed him over to take everyone's place. You just put your name right there. He handed Jesus over to take, put your name there, your place. So then the Apostle Paul says, How then will he not also graciously give us all things that accompany his Son? Jesus is true God. Now the things that accompany him are not, all, are not riches and wealth in this world's ways. God would give some Christians that and he withholds it from some. We can get confused and think, Oh, I want the worldly blessings. Those are not what accompanied his Son. What did come together with his Son? Faith, glory. Jesus is the king of all creation. All those things that came with his son, he's going to give to you. Jesus' resurrection is your resurrection. That glory that the disciples saw we covered last Sunday at that transfiguration, they just got a glimpse of it, that's going to be your glory. He's going to give it to you when he raises your and my bodies on judgment day. Jesus came from heaven. That comes with Him. That means heaven is yours and mine. Heaven is being before the throne of our wonderful God. Jesus is King of all creation. It means God uses rules over all creation for your benefit. There's so many things that come together with Jesus. And if God did not withhold His Son from all the harsh things so that He could make you His own, the Apostle Paul says, when your sinful nature is telling you these trials are God acting against me or abandoning me, you tell it it's lying. If he didn't spare his son, then he is intending on giving you everything that comes together with Jesus. It's a package deal. So he says, who then will bring charges against those elected by God? See, that's the devil's thing. He stands there every day and he says, you're named. I got him. There's the sin. Oh, then there's the blood of Christ. I got him. There's the sin. Oh, there's the blood of Christ. I got him. There's... It's got to get to be kind of frustrating for him. Jesus suffered the punishment for your sins. Therefore, you cannot be punished for them. You trust in him as your savior. Who can bring a charge against you? Oh, our sinful nature likes to do this, though. It comes up with us with that guilt. <laughs> First, it tells us, go ahead and do this. It's no big deal. A little fly underneath the radar. Then we do it and it says, how could you? I'm amazed at how I can look back at life, sometimes remember something I did when I was three years old and feel so guilty for it. My own sinful nature accused me, but you know what? Before God, God says, I don't know what you're talking about. I see my son's righteousness. So who can bring a charge against us? The apostle says, God is the one who continually declares righteous. Over and over again, the Greek tense makes it clear continually. God looks at you and says, righteous, 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 righteous. Sitting there declaring you righteous. Got to be frustrating for the devil. I got him. This one's mine. I got this big sin. Oh, righteous again? You'd think he'd take the hint and give up, but he's not too smart. Who then will be the one who pronounces judgment of condemnation? 
Who is going to be the one that says you are condemned to hell is what the Apostle Paul is saying. Then he says Christ Jesus is the one who died and even more was raised. He is also at God's right hand. He also keeps on interceding on our behalf. Just goes through a train there to derail the thoughts of our own sinful nature that would think God is punishing us when our trials come upon us. Number one, Jesus died in your place. Number two, how can we know that the work of our salvation is finished? Jesus shouted out, it's finished on the cross. But if there was still more to be done, God the Father would not have raised him from the grave. Apostle says this in the passive, someone raised Jesus from the grave. Jesus' resurrection is God handing you a receipt saying, there you go, my beloved child. Your sins are paid for in full. No punishment for you. Oh, but there's more. He's at God's right hand. That's the position of power. He rules over all creation every day for you. Again, when trials come upon you, Jesus is using it for your good. So don't think God's abandoning you or punishing you. And lastly, he says he also keeps on interceding on our behalf. Who's the one who's going to judge us? Jesus on judgment day is the one who's going to judge us. But who is our attorney? The one who keeps arguing on our behalf? Jesus. He sits there every day before the father. My blood wash that sin away. My blood wash that sin away. I love this analogy. If you have to go to court and your attorney is your judge, you know you're going to win. It's rigged. And it's rigged to your benefit. The one who is looking out for your best is the one who's going to judge you. And you're already judged when you have faith in him. You are judged righteous. Every second of every hour of every day, God the Father just keeps saying righteous. God the Son just keeps saying righteous. So then we finally get to that. We see that when trials come upon us in hard times, we see that God is using them for our good. He's not punishing us. But what about that fear? That fear that a trial is going to come along and I'm going to fall. I'm going to lose my faith. That's what the apostle addresses next. He says in verse 35, Who then will sever us away from Christ's love? The inspired Greek language here has a picture like cutting off somebody's arm and throwing it away from their body for good. Horrible picture. You're united to Christ in the mystical union of all believers. So who can possibly cut you away? The apostle uses that in, 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 when he addresses the Corinthians, that we're all one body and Christ is the head. So to Christ having you removed is going to be losing his right or left arm. Who's going to sever you from that? The Apostle Paul then turns around and enlists the devil's toolkit. The toolkit that this world uses. The things your sinful nature will want to turn away from. He says, will trouble that causes suffering. Or difficult circumstances. Can these do this when you're united to Christ? God's not going to let them happen. He says, or persecution. There we go. When you are hated specifically because you are united to Christ by the faith he's given you and people want to kill you. God may let them take your life, but he's not going to let them take your soul. God may prevent them from taking your life. God knows what's best, but he's not going to let you be severed from him. What about other things, though? other trials that come upon this life when the stock markets crash? He says, or hunger or nakedness. You've been robbed and everything you own been have been taken from you. When hardships come upon and, and you're so broke that you don't even have clothes to shelter your body. Are those going to sever you? No. Or peril, that's the word for bodily danger, getting bruised and beat up. Or the sword. 
A lot of people don't realize this. The, uh, the, the Muslim religion, the technique that they use to convert people, and it's always been this way. I have met more than one person who has actually undergone this. Seen fathers and family do this. They'll come into a town, they conquer it. They beat it with, they use weapons. And then they line up the men in the town. They take the, the biggest guy and they say, Do you believe in Allah and Muhammad as his prophet? And if they don't answer somewhere in the affirmative, yes, cut his head off or shoot him. Boom! Move on to the next guy. You usually don't have to get too far behind the line before somebody finally says, Praise Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. This happened in the early Christian church under the Roman government. They would seek out the pastor in the congregation. And all they would do is tell the pastor, You can live if you'll offer a sacrifice to Caesar, a pinch of incest to him as a god. Oh yeah, and hand over all those scriptures. Remember, they were expensive to get in those days. Most pastors didn't do it and lost their lives. They went to heaven. That was God's reward. But there were some who rationed. I can't take care of my flock. God will forgive me. I can't take care of my flock if I'm dead. And they would do it and, and say, Lord, forgive me. The Donatists came along and said, if you were baptized by one of those guys, even if it was 30 years earlier, your baptism didn't count. They were wrong. God's word is what makes your baptism stick. What happens when we have such persecutions? Well, you know what? God did forgive those people. God was there. So those kinds, even the sword, God is not going to use that, is not going to let that sever us from him. And so we're told in verse 36, just as, has been, as it has been written on account of you, that's God, we keep on being killed all day long. We're considered as sheep for the slaughter. That's the Israelites complaining as they're harassed by their neighboring nations. They're just complaining to God here. You're letting our neighbors do this and this stinks. But the Apostle Paul puts... A Christ-centered interpretation on that with verse 37. He says, however, in the midst of these things, we continue completely conquering through the one who loved us. Because Jesus died for you, he's already defeated the devil. The victory's already yours. He has flung open wide heaven and said, hell is not where you're going. I won't let it happen. What comfort. The victory is ours. If we lose our life, our soul's still going to heaven. If we don't lose our life, we're just here to share the glory of God. Our soul's still going to go to heaven. Everything that accompanies Christ is going to be ours. So the Apostle Paul says it's because of the word of God. He says in verse 38, Indeed, I remain convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, neither things that have already happened nor things that are going to happen, neither powerful forces, neither great heights nor extreme depth, wherever we go geographically in this world, nor any other thing in creation, whatever else happened, God created it. So he has control over it. We'll be able to sever us away from God's love in connection with Christ Jesus, our Lord. So God uses trials, as we saw with Abraham in our Old Testament lesson, for our benefit and the benefit of our neighbor. And we never should want to view trials as proof that God has abandoned us. God has made it too clear. He loves you. He's purchased and won you. And he is holding tightly on to you. And so we can say those wonderful words uh, that Luther wrote in that hymn. A mighty fortress is our God. A trusty shield and weapon. Amen. And now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious present without fault and with great joy to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages now and forevermore. Amen.